John, what are you eating? You didn't eat anything. Yeah. John, look at mommy. Anything. Are you telling me the truth? Yeah. You didn't have any snacks? Nope. Let me see. You didn't have any snacks. Open wide, let me see. Really? You didn't have any snacks? John, come here. John, can you explain to me why, why the sprinkles are empty? Well, they're not empty. John, look at me. They're not empty. Did you eat those sprinkles? No. I did not. You know it's not nice to tell stories and to lie, right? Look at Mommy. You're not supposed to lie. Tell me now. Did you eat those sprinkles? No. I did not eat those sprinkles. John, mm -hmm. you have sprinkles on your face. Well, we laugh at that video because the evidence is overwhelming that he's lying to his mother, right? And he has sprinkles all over his face. And as funny as that video might be, I've seen it several times, the reality is that when we try to hide our sin behind a mask, it's just as obvious to God. I, I really believe after preaching in the first service, I really believe I could stop right there and you may say, well, that's simple. But that's what Jesus did a lot in his teaching, by the way. Jesus would tell a little story and then the point would be obvious. And then I think he'd just close in prayer without having to say a whole lot, even though he was the son of God and everything he said was important, he would just stop right there. And I really believe that after a silly little video like that, you know what our series title is. We're talking about masquerade. If you really knew the real me, if you only knew, we're talking about dropping the mask. And I think that that's exactly where so many of us find ourselves. And here's the irony of the whole thing. That just like that little boy believed that somehow his mom did not know that he had been in those sprinkles, you and I both live a good portion of our lives as if God does not know that the sprinkles are all over our face. And as I said to you last week, the great truth is that God sees behind the mask. He knows exactly what's there, and yet he loves us. And over the years, I've talked with many people who were hiding. In fact, if I'm honest, and if you're honest this morning, you'd have to say that there have been moments, maybe you find yourself there right now in your life when you've tried to hide your sin as well. And maybe you're here this morning and your life could be described by one of these words, hide, blame, excuse, deny. Here's the sober truth. Most of the time when we're hiding, we convince ourselves that we will never be found out, just like that little boy. Got into those sprinkles and just thought there's no way that anybody will ever know, and yet there are sprinkles all over our face this morning. We somehow convince ourselves that payday will never come, that the day of reckoning will never dawn. It's like the student who's cheating their way to good grades rather than doing the hard work rather than doing the studying that's required for those grades. It's the person who's spending money that they do not have because they're trying to fill a void in their life. We're going to talk about that issue of hiding behind a mask called financial fakers two weeks from now. 
And that money is only satisfying for a short time, but the debts are accumulating and you're to the point now where you don't even want to open up the bills. There's a stack of envelopes that are laying on the desk. It's the husband or the wife that's unhappy in their marriage and they've convinced themselves that they deserve to be happy and so they've become involved with another person. It's the religious person that is here today and you've sung all the songs and when I dive into my text here this morning into a familiar story, you're going you're gonna to know the story and you're going to do all of the things that you need to do behind a religious mask today only to leave moments from now and basically for the rest of the week, the other seven days, to do a 180 and live a totally different life. It's the man who sits in front of his computer night after night, lusting after women, uh, telling himself that, that nobody will ever know, nobody will ever find out, and after all, it's a guy thing. It's the businessman or woman who month after month has been padding their expense account, justifying it by saying, they don't pay me enough and I deserve these funds anyway. The reality is that our sin always catches up to us. There was a great king in Israel, and if you have your Bibles, I, wanna, I want you to turn there with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 12. In fact, this particular king, the apostle Paul, referred to him as a man after God's own heart. I like that. I like that he's described that way by the Apostle Paul, especially when we come to particular areas in his life like we'll talk about this morning that don't seem uh, too characteristic of a man that we'd be described as a man after God's own heart. I like that because 2 Samuel 12 reminds me that, that David was a guy just like me and he was a person just like you and I. And ultimately... He lived a lot of his life as a, as a good guy, as a faithful guy, as a, as a lover of God. But yet in 2 Samuel chapter 11, things go terribly wrong for David. And we're going to look at that story this morning. Look at verse 1. It says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbath. But David stayed at Jerusalem. At the very root of David's problem right from the start was that David was not where he was supposed to be. Now, I don't know if you found this out to be true in your life. Parents, we're good, by the way, of making sure that we challenge our kids about this. But when you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're likely to get yourself in trouble. Are you not? Right? I mean, if, if I'm at home with the mega-stuffed Oreos which I was just yesterday, by the way, because a woman in our church gave me some. Okay, She felt like that that was appropriate, being at the store, and she goes, Mega Oreo, that has Brian written all over it. But I, but I know that if those Oreos are, are in the cabinet and there's nobody else around except me and Jesus, and I know he won't tell on me, I know that if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong circumstances, the bad things are going to happen. Parents, we say it to our kids all the time, and adults, it's just as true for us. That's where King David is. King David is supposed to be at war. He's supposed to be at battle. Instead, he sends Joab, and he sends the servants and all the other warriors out, and he's at the palace. Some have suggested that maybe David was battling depression or having a midlife crisis in either event. He wasn't where he belonged. Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof 
of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, there's an advantage to our roofs in Cary, North Carolina, is it not? You won't be walking around on your roof watching your neighbor bathe. It just probably won't happen. That's where David was. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew word that's translated in our English text, saw, is the word that means to look and to look intensely. It's not just a a word that, that there is in Hebrew that's just a glance. It is to look at something, to like what you see and look at it intensely. That's what David was doing here in this text. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I want you to underline your Bible, if you have a pen there and you have the text open, and one said. We have no idea who this one is that said this to the king, but whoever this was, whether it was a servant, whether it was a friend of David, that person said, Hey, king, just want you to know, that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam, the wife, underline wife, of Uriah the Hittite. Just want you to know before you get yourself into something that you're going to regret. I found it to be true in my life, and hopefully you have too, that there are oftentimes people in my life, we don't know who that person is, but he's not named here in Scripture, but there's one person that gives me a warning. Maybe that's where you are in your life right now and somebody's given you a warning about something that you're about to step over the precipice and it's about to lead you in a place that you do not want to go with consequences that you do not intend and yet you're looking at that person going, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, if you only knew I deserve, yeah, it's not going to happen to me. I'm really thankful for those and one saids in my life. Those people who love me enough to to warn me. Middle school, high school students, if you have parents like that today, and I know many of you do, parents who will warn you and will not let you be in places that you're not supposed to be and with people that you shouldn't be with, you ought to thank Jesus for them. You ought to thank God every day that God gave you those kind of parents. David doesn't listen. Verse 4, David sent messengers and he took her. When she came to him, he laid with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. By this point, it's very apparent that David's intentions have shifted from just simply an interest in who Bathsheba was. It wasn't a, hey, let me meet my neighbor, never seen her before kind of a thing, to something very, very different. I really believe that David had no plans for a long-term affair. I I really believe that there's a possibility that when he invited her over, he he really thought, I, I'll just get to know this woman. She she's beautiful, she's without her husband, I'm the king. Instead, there was just a one-night stand with a good-looking woman. And as sin always does, sin has its consequences. Look at verse 5. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. The whole story really can be summarized in those five verses. And tragically, the story rarely ends with the act of sin itself. I don't know if you found it to be true in your life, but rarely does it end with my sin. End of story. Got away with it. That was a great time. In fact, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 say this, Do not be deceived, God's not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life eternal. David had not anticipated the result of his sin with Bathsheba. And so just like David, 
Just like his predecessors had done, David does what was his first instinct. He tried to cover up his sin and he shifted responsibility. You remember from our study last week that we talked about that first masquerade ball in Genesis chapter 3. How Adam and Eve attempted to cover themselves up. And it's been that way now for thousands of years. There's a a cover-up that begins. There's a mask that begins to be worn. We know what we've done. We're ashamed of what we've done. We probably wish we hadn't have done it. Now David finds out that there's going to be a consequence that she's pregnant. And so now he's got to begin to cover. He's got to come up with a plan. So he begins to fashion his mask. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says this, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. We might translate that verse this way, Whoever wears mask and conceals their sin, they do not prosper. Payday always comes. Look what he does in verse 6. Then David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Now you have to remember, Uriah was out where David was supposed to be, right? Uriah was out there fighting with the other warriors, fighting with the other men in battle against the enemy. And and David says, hey, why don't you bring him to me? And so Uriah must have wondered, what would the king want with me? I'm insignificant. I'm a nobody. Uriah comes home and David sits down with him and and talks with him. And verse 8 says, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and a And a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Why not? Look at verse 10. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? In other words, haven't you been away and you've been away from your wife and thanks for the report that you've given me? Now, why don't you go home and enjoy some time with your family? Why don't you have a nice meal, spend a nice evening with your wife, and oh, by the way, uh, have sex with her so that you can cover up what I've done. DNA testing won't be there for thousands of years, and I could be okay yet. Verse 11, such a sobering passage of Scripture. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Their lives are at risk. Look at the character of Uriah. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this. What an incredible man of character. We don't do often uh, character sketches on Uriah, but I can't wait to meet him someday. What an incredible man. David tries again, verse 12. He said, stay here today also and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And so then David calls to him and he eats with him and he drinks with him and he thinks if I get him drunk, somehow his his decision-making will be as flawed and corrupted as mine is and, and maybe he'll go home, but Uriah would not do it. And so David, sensing desperation and sensing the need to cover, goes into a final act of desperation. And like most desperate people do, when they're trying to cover, they do something stupid. Look at verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Little did Uriah know that the very note that he was carrying in his hand was his death sentence. And David, without any explanation, because he was the king after all, he had ultimate authority. 
He wrote a letter saying, place your eye in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. And so Joab did exactly what he was told to do. And they went out to fight. They stuck Uriah right at the front. And he was struck down and he was killed. Look at verse 19. He charged the messenger saying, Joab did, When you finish telling all the events of the war to the king, say this, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? The idea is that they've made some errors in the battle. Hasn't gone exactly like Joab thought it might go, but he knew David and he knew David's ultimate goal was to cover up. Verse 21, who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerobasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? If he gets mad about our tactics, if he gets mad about what we've done, then just tell him this. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. You see, Joab knew David's flawed character, his lack of integrity, and that even though they had made all these other mistakes and there were all these innocent men that were dead, David simply cared that Uriah was dead. Look at David's response, verse 25. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. (laughs) Don't worry about it. It's just a few men, and who are they? For the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. Encourage him with those words. Verse 26, now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife. She had the baby. And he said, I have won. The mask that I have put on my face has has covered everything. And now there's nobody that knows. Only two people. Bathsheba knows. She was not going to tell anybody. Maybe a few servants know. They're not going to tell anybody. They'd be fearful for their own lives. David sinned, and he thought that he has has managed to build an effective cover-up plan, and he only overlooked one small detail, and that is what we talked about last week, that God sees behind the mask. God sees the sprinkles all over our faces. See, here's what happens when we try to hide our sin. Here's what's amazing about God. When we try to cover it up, God has an amazing way of uncovering it, doesn't he? In fact, Luke chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus said, For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Numbers 32, verse 23 says, You can be sure that your sin is going to find you out. Payday is going to come. Sin has a way of coming out. It reminds me of yesterday I was in my office and I was studying and I had the window open and we live in a townhouse and my office is at the back of the townhouse and we're at the end and there's a little walkway between us and there's one that's for sale just two over and I saw this lady I looked out the window and I saw this lady walking to the back of the townhouse evidently they were looking at it to buy and she walked back there and she had several things in her hand one of them was a, a cup from something she'd been drinking someplace. And, and I'm just kind of curious as what she's doing back there. People don't typically walk back there. It's just a woods. And all of a sudden, I look down and I see her do this. She's got the cup in her hand. And she looks like this. And she looks the other way. She kind of looks around like this. And then she takes the cup and she heaves it off into the woods. 
And I thought, wow, I mean, how could you do that? It was such an obvious thing. And I wanted to say, what have you done? I have seen your sin. I thought this would have been, I'm getting the iPhone out, I'm going, this is gonna be awesome. This is gonna be like the best illustration ever of you cannot cover your sin. And instead, in my moment of weakness, I did absolutely nothing. It's so unlike me not to do that. She threw the cup off into the woods and she went walking back as if nothing had ever happened. Nobody saw her. It's exactly where David finds himself. He's kind of looked around. He knows who knows and he thinks everything is fine. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who's Nathan? Nathan's a prophet. What you need to know about prophets is they know stuff. All right? They know stuff. God sends them as messengers and and they, they confront and they tell people things that they need to hear. They know stuff because God tells them stuff, all right? The Lord sends Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, I want to tell you a story. Here's the story. There's two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. Verse 3, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and he nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. I read that and go, I don't totally get that, right? I mean, I've never had a desire to lay down with a ewe lamb. And if I had a ewe lamb, maybe he'd be my little son, but he'd never be my daughter. I just don't, I guess a ewe lamb is a girl, but I just don't get it, right? It's just, it's just kind of odd, but the, the, the story is like this. I guess David understood it in their day. The story goes, verse 4, there's a traveler that comes to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take from his own flock of his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Bottom line is, here's a rich man, and he has somebody come from out of town. Maybe it's an old high school or a college buddy, and he really doesn't like him, all right? I mean, if it was one of his good buddies he played football with, they were great friends, maybe he'd go and he'd get one of his animals and he'd slaughter the animal and they'd have a feast. But this guy, evidently, is just kind of somebody like, hey, thanks for showing up. I didn't really want to see you. And the guy's going, hey, we need some food. And so rather than taking one of his animals, what does he do? He takes the poor man's ewe lamb, and he prepares it for the man who had come to him. End of story, right? Now look at verse 5. Look at David's reaction. <laughs> Underline this in your Bible. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Here's what's been my experience. Maybe it's been yours as well. That I can so quickly identify as sin in someone else areas which are issues in my own life. Are you good at that as well? I'm a master at it. In fact, typically, I'll just disclose this to you, okay? Dropping the mask, everything. If I ever confront you about something you would do well to at least go, I wonder if he's got that same issue. Especially if I'm really eloquent in my speech and I'm really passionate. Because it could be that I've got the same issue. Look at David's passion. He, he wasn't just upset going, that's not nice. I mean, come on. He's got all these animals and he takes the, the little ewe lamb that was kind of treated like a family member from this poor man. That, that's not a nice. No, he, he burned with anger. Verse 6, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And he had no compassion. In spite of his obvious sin, David's pretty good at giving a good speech. 
I've been surprised at times in my life at the depth of my depravity. Have you? When you've done things and you've said things, you've confronted other people, parents, maybe it's your kids, husbands, maybe it's your wives, where you've said something, and you've delivered your your little speech to them, your little confrontation, your little rebuke, you've delivered it with eloquent speech only to know that you're guilty of the very same thing. It's such a frightening position to be in, the ability to talk when we have no intention of walking the walk. Well, Nathan obviously is setting David up, and David takes the bait. I mean, if there's a little bobber floating, and there's a little worm on the end of it, and the fish is kind of swimming around, David's like the, the largemouth bass, and he's coming along, and he's got his mouth wide open, and he takes the bait right from Nathan which indicates that he still does have a moral compass, even though he has totally ignored his own situation. In verse 7, Nathan gives the punchline to the parable. Verse 7, Nathan then said to David, You are the man. The Lord sent Nathan to David, quite frankly, because God loved him. And if I can say this humbly, perhaps the Lord is sending me to you today to warn you that you are the man. You're the woman. You're the middle school student. You're the high school student. And God loves you enough that he's bringing a message to you in this particular series where he's saying, hey, I see the sprinkles on your face. That's enough. That's exactly what's happening here. Robert Lewis, when he was teaching about this moment of decision in David's life, he pointed out that David could have continued in denial with words such as, I did not have sex with that woman. Instead, the element of David's being that made him a man after God's own heart rose up within him with what Lewis calls the face of the king. And David, face to face with himself, made the most noble statement of his life. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses, no spin, no double talk, no legalese, no waffling. He dropped the mask. He confessed his sin. And I believe that that was a defining moment in David's life. And I would say to you this morning that maybe this morning for some of you who have been wearing this mask of unrepentant sin, that maybe today is the day that will be a defining moment in your life. If you'll be willing to drop the mask, to admit there are sprinkles all over your face. God sees behind the mask. He knows exactly what you've done and where your heart is. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 is one of my favorite psalms for sure. It's David's prayer, David's prayer of confession. And we don't have time to read the whole thing, but I want to point out just a few things. In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Notice there was no more covering, no more blaming like happened in the garden. The woman, she gave it to me. Well, the serpent, he gave it to me. No blaming, no covering, no excuse making. Verse 6, you desire truth. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then I, I love verse 12 where David prays this. God, would you restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit? And David knew what it really meant to walk with God, to be a friend of God, to be a man after God's own heart. And he's saying, God, would you, would you please make me clean again? 
I don't want to have a guilty conscience anymore. Some of you, by the way, I know you, you know me, I know some of your stories. Some of you are living there right now. You've just recently confessed sin that's gone on your life for years and years and years. And you know what it is to be clean, don't you? Isn't it awesome? Isn't it awesome to be clean, to know that God sees all the sprinkles on your face and yet he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. David says, God, would you restore to me again? I remember when I walked with you, when I was a man after your heart. I want that again. You see, genuine repentance brings forgiveness, restoration, and healing. And the end result of that process is it brings about change. I wish that was the end of the story. If we were to follow the story, you'd see in verse 13. Again, that David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. But verse 14, because of the deeds that you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Some of you look at that and you go, wow, what a a horrible consequence. Why would God take that child? Why Why would God do that? You see, our forgiveness very often, our repentance does not cancel out consequences. Some of you need to hear that. You need to understand that today because you've bought into the idea that you can keep the mask on and then one day you'll just drop the mask and go, sorry. Consider these facts about sin. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay and it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And here's the truth. If you know your Bibles well and you know the remainder of the life of David and his children, you will see that for years and years and years, The price is paid because of David's sin. There's no way that he was walking around on the roof of his house that nice summer evening. And he thought, I'll go take that beautiful woman. I'll have sex with her. She'll have have a child. And then I'll have to kill her husband. And, and, And then I'll confess. And then God will take the child. And then this will happen to my son and to his son. And this will, he never thought about that. And that's why for many of us, much of our life is lived as if we're at a masquerade ball, that it's dress-up time. We think that if we cover, that somehow the consequences will never come. Here's the problem. You see if you relate to this. I know for me that when I sin, I know what I've done. I know in some cases what I continue to do what I probably will do again. And here's the thing, that no amount of penance or sorrow or sadness will do anything to stop the sin. You say, wow, then what are we doing here? Well, here's the deal. What we need to understand is grace. One author said it this way, when we walk away With unresolved sin, it's as if we're wearing a heavily insulated parka on the hottest day of the summer in the Sahara Desert. We're suffocating and we can't figure out why. He says repentance is simply the zipper out of the parka. In the middle of our misery, it is as if Jesus taps us on the shoulder and says, I have something for you that costs me everything to get for you. Here's the gift of grace. Written across the gift is one word, repentance. The card attached reads, take it, apply it, and trust me to make it real. I love you, Jesus. 
See, here's the problem. For many of us, we think that repentance is fixing what we've done wrong. That somehow we're going to fix it. We're just going to make all things, all things better. And we've missed the very essence of the gospel. The whole point of grace is that we cannot fix what we have done wrong. We can do nothing on our own. I'm so convinced that those of us that have grown up in churches, we continue to battle sin and we fall and we fall and we fall and we fall again because we are trying to fix it on our own, thereby not really understanding the very essence of the gospel which says you can't fix anything. You can't do anything on your own. If you're here and you have an addiction and you've been fighting that addiction and you, you just, oh, you want to ple- be pleasing to God and you want him to look down at you and say, you're a good boy, you're a good girl. And yet you continue and you strive after it and you work hard after it because of what, what you can do and that time after time after time you stumble. May I suggest to you this morning that the reason why you continue to battle against that and you continue not to have victory is that you think you can do it on your own when the very essence of the gospel says you cannot do it on your own. It is all about God's grace and about his power. And that's the only way we'll be able to change things is for God to change things. You see, here's the problem, that we are desperate. Louis Giglio said it this way, sin doesn't make us bad, it's worse than that. Sin makes us dead. But here's the good news, that Jesus gives us life. I love Ephesians chapter 2. I don't have time to read the first 10 verses, but if you've been here long enough, you know those are some of my favorite verses. I love that passage of Scripture. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Bad news. You are dead. I preached a a message here one time out of Ephesians chapter 2, and I called it uh, Dead Men Walking. And then they started a TV series about that whole deal just because I said that. And I think that's where it came from anyway. But that's where we are. We're zombies. We're walking around and we think we got life and we think life is good and we are dead. That's what sin has done to us. There is no real joy. There's only little moments where we experience joy, where we experience some level of satisfaction. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then you know how much I love that phrase in verse 4. But God... But God, because he's not dead, he's alive, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, when we were zombies walking around in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ, and it is by his grace that we're saved. It's not about you doing better. It's not about you stopping anything. It is about understanding that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he comes to live inside of us. Literally, he takes up residence in our life. And it's through his power and not our own that we can have victory over sin. Here's the lie that Satan whispers and that so many of us believe that what we've done can't be forgiven. Statistically, I just know that in this room right now, there are some of you that are sitting there and you're thinking, man, if he knew what, I'd, what I've done. I don't necessarily know what you've done. Maybe I do. You've got sprinkles all over your face. Maybe I don't. But let me tell you this. You don't know what I've done either. Here's the great news. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far down the road that you've gone. I know this, and this is why I do what I do, because I know that God is there to meet you. And then he's not standing there with his arms folded like this going, what you got? Are you going to say the right words to me? 
And then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to open my arms. See, the problem is many of us have grown up thinking that that's who God is and that's not who God is. Luke 15, story of the prodigal. That's not who God is. God is the God who stands at the end of the road with his arms wide open and says, come to me. And in his arms, you're going to find forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Don't buy into the lie that you can't be forgiven, that things can't change. Here's the bottom line, that many of you stand at a crossroads today. You know where you are and you have no idea of the price to pay if you're found out. You know what's going on in your life, no matter how significant or how huge that you think it might be, or really maybe you're buying into the idea that it's not really that big of a deal. You have a decision to make at that crossroad. You can continue to conceal it and not prosper, or you can drop the mask and do as David said, have your salvation, the joy of your salvation restored to you. Or if you don't know Christ, you can come into a relationship with Jesus because of his grace, his mercy, and his love. The choice is yours, and it's a significant life-changing choice. Today you stand at that crossroads, you can continue to wear the mask, or you can drop it. You would pray something like this, Jesus, I'm ready to move in a new direction. Here's my sin that I'm trusting you can do something about. I know I can't deal with this sin on my own. I've tried that and I failed. I trust that what you did on the cross is powerful enough not only to bring me to heaven someday, but also powerful enough to break the power of this sin in my life. I trust you. I cannot do this on my own. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Use your spirit to do the work in my life. And here's what I know to be true. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 say this. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm so glad that I serve a God like that. There's no way I would do what I do if I did not understand the good news, the message of the gospel. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't want to stand up in front of people and proclaim something other than the true, pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that God has the power to transform and to change your life. He sees all of the sprinkles on your face and my face. He sees them, and yet he loves us. Let's pray. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I was very struck last week that in both services, When I asked the question about unrepentant sin, a number of hands went up. Masks were dropped. People saying, that's where I am. I've got unconfessed sin in my life. I know I got a mask on. I know at some point I'm probably going to be found out. I'm, I'm playing a game. Pray for me that God would bring conviction, that somehow God would use his spirit in my life to give me victory here and to cause me to move in a new direction. If, if that's you this morning and you say, Brian, that's where I am. I got sprinkles all over my face. Only they're transparent to, to human beings and nobody sees them just yet, but I recognize God sees them all over my face. He sees the sprinkle jars half empty. I know I'm guilty. I know I need to rely on his power to give me victory. I need to repent. I need to move in a new direction. Just pray for me that that this power of the sin in my life will be broken and that God will restore to me the joy of my salvation. If that's you this morning, would you just, before I pray, would you just slip your hand up and let me see your hand? Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. All over the auditorium. Thanks for being honest. That so encourages me. 
You say, how could that encourage you? Well, it encourages me. Thank you. It encourages me because it's mask dropping. That's the kind of people that we want to be as we talked about last week. I want to go around with a bunch of people with sprinkles on their face and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's dealing with it. Thanks for being honest. Anybody else before I pray? Thank you. God, I pray for those that have just raised their hands. I don't know what's going on in each situation, but I know the very easy thing to do will be just moments from now just to quietly slip out of this auditorium and go back into life as we knew it an hour and 15 minutes ago. I'm fearful that that's what we do week after week after week when we come in here. We're confronted with truth. Your spirit begins to work in our heart and then we squelch it. We slip the mask right back on right as we exit the auditorium and we go back to life just as it was before and consequently we never enjoy the relationship with you that we were created to have because sin stands in the way. We trust in ourselves to fix it, to make it better, to somehow do better and please God more realizing that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. God, I pray for each one of these folks that raised their hand for them to understand that there is mercy and grace and freedom and joy that is available at the foot of the cross. And God, as I've prayed, as I've prepared this week, God, don't make me be a hypocrite. I know from time to time I slip that mask on and God, I pray when it does, I pray somebody will say, you have sprinkles all over your face. I want to be real. I want to be transparent. I want these people that I love and care about so desperately to enjoy that same kind of life which lies clean before a holy God, which is transparent before a world that so desperately wants to know and understand is this gospel real and does it make a difference in our life? God, I pray we would live that way. And I I pray we would live for your honor and for your glory. Amen. Let me just say at the end of the service here, I've determined as of last week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little different. We're going to do it every week when I'm preaching and when Matt's preaching, he's going to do the same thing. I'm just going to be down front after the service. As I just said, I think it's so easy, certainly easy for me to get up here and to say things and for the Spirit of God to start moving in hearts and then for you just to kind of go, I was uncomfortable for a moment there, and then just kind of exit for the back doors. And I want you to know one sinner to another sinner, one beggar to another beggar, I'm standing up front, and if I can pray with you about that, if I can challenge you, if I can hold you accountable, if you need counsel past that, if you need somebody to really get involved in your life, that's what we want to do. That's what we're here about. We're not here about just putting on masks for an hour and 15 minutes and playing a game, all right? We want to see life change. And so I'll be standing up front. Love to talk with you if you'd like to do that this morning.